looking at Matthew 27, starting in verse 57 to the end of the chapter. I'm going to read this passage. I'd like to ask Tim Freitag if he pray for the ministry of the Word this morning. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 57. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given over to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception shall be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Let us pray. Most holy Lord, we come before you as a flock of sheep asking to be fed. We desire, as we have just sung, to glean from your word those beautiful truths and rare jewels that you have set there for your people to find. Father, it is a passage familiar to many of us from many, many years, but we ask that you would show it to us in the clear light of the truth of your word, that we would not be deceived by our own notions, that we would hear with understanding. Father, we ask that you would strengthen your under-shepherd, that you would raise him up to speak your word with power and dignity to handle it according to your will and your ways. Father, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tradition has the death of Jesus Christ and his burial occurring on Good Friday. His resurrection, of course, commemorated by Easter. Have you ever noticed that it's kind of hard to get three days and three nights out of that arrangement? <laughs> it's very hard indeed. Um, in fact, there's no way that you can get three days and three nights Though many scholars have tried, um, if Jesus was laid to rest in the tomb late Friday afternoon and he rose and the tomb was empty in the morning of the first day of the week, the best you can do is get two nights in the tomb. And I know that it's controversial to talk about things like that because we've been trained and taught by the church to believe but frankly, the error that was made by tradition does, um, uh, does not justify our slavish obedience to a chronology that is not supported by the Scripture. The confusion is caused by the reference in the Gospels to the day of preparation. Now we read in the Gospels that because of the day of preparation, the preparation of the body of Jesus Christ was done rapidly. He was embalmed not, not entirely according to the 
process. In fact, that's what the women were going to do the first day of the week when they went to the tomb. We also know that because of that day, the leaders of the Jews went to Pilate and asked that the legs of the crucified be broken, that they might die more quickly and not be alive on the cross during the Sabbath. The day of preparation is the day before the Sabbath. It was the day in which the families would prepare all that they would need for the Sabbath day so that they would not be found working on the Sabbath. And so, typically, the day of preparation ran from Thursday evening to Friday evening, or what we would call Friday. And so, since it was the day of preparation as referred to here, as well as in Luke and in Mark, tradition assigned the day of Jesus' death to Friday. But the day of preparation was a day of preparation ahead of any Sabbath day. And the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was also a Sabbath day. And so that would mean that the day of Passover was also a day of preparation. In other words, the chronology of the cross is difficult to work out. When you compare and try to harmonize, which we will, Lord willing, do when we look at the resurrection. Nonetheless, there are other Sabbath days that the Jews celebrated during their calendar year. And the day before each of those Sabbath days would have been a preparation day. In other words, it need not have been Friday that Jesus was laid in the tomb. But more important than the chronology, which as I said is hard to work out, is the prophecy of Christ being in the tomb for three days and three nights. The Jews demanded a sign from Jesus. In Matthew 12 we read, Jesus' response. He said, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, However we work it out and however we justify when the things occurred, we do know that we have the Passover to deal with, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would have encompassed at least two Sabbaths, the first day of the feast and also the weekly Sabbath Jesus was in the tomb three nights. But what did he do while he was there? I'm sure that's another question that you must have wondered. What did Jesus do when he was in the tomb? We know that his body lay on that slab of Joseph's tomb. We're told that no other body had been laid there. It was new. But what of his soul? We believe from the teaching of Scripture that when the body dies, the soul does not die. The soul goes somewhere, either to blessedness or to torment. The soul of the man Jesus Christ also did not die. And so what Jesus did during those three days has been a subject of teaching within the church for 2,000 years. But it's also been a subject of great disagreement among the church for 2,000 years. But there is a consensus, however, that he was not inactive. In other words, there is a consensus that he did something. And that's what I want to look at today, hopefully from Scripture. But I want to begin with the Apostles' Creed. Most of us are familiar with the Apostles' Creed. It's a statement, of course, the, the word credo from Latin, I believe. It's a statement of what we believe. And with regard to Jesus Christ, 
whom we say we believe was born of the virgin. We also believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And so that represents a very traditional and early belief of the church that when Jesus died in the body, he went into Hades, or hell, or Sheol. And what did he do there? Well, that's from the Apostles' Creed, which, by the way, was not written by the Apostles, okay? which is why it's called the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> it came about, uh, I believe, late 2nd or 3rd century. Uh, in other words, long after the Apostles had died. It represented orthodoxy in the early church as the church was, was finally coming together into more of a cohesive whole, soon to be, or perhaps even at that time, I'm not sure of the exact date because they found different copies of the Apostle Creed in different places, but Constantine would legalize and legitimatize Christianity. And before long, Christianity would become the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. This was the statement of orthodoxy. It evidences belief of a preaching ministry of the dead Jesus. It may not have come from the apostles, but it dates far enough back for us to realize that the church in its earliest days believed that Jesus was not inactive in his soul during those three days, but rather he proclaimed the gospel. But to whom? And to what purpose? And where? Well, I want to look this morning at two passages that muddy the water. But they have the advantage of coming directly from the apostles as opposed to the Apostles' Creed, which didn't. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9, and 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. And the reason I'm turning to these is that I believe that these are the passages that led to the belief within the early church of what it is that Jesus did when he was in the tomb, when his soul was no longer in his body. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9 Paul writes, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? And there's that word lower, that phrase lower parts. And so theologians have, have taken that lower parts to mean the grave, or perhaps Sheol, or in the more westernized phrasing, hell. That he descended into hell. And that's where this teaching came from. Psalm 139 verse 15 speaks of the womb as the depths of the earth. Thou hast formed me or seen my form even in the depths of the earth. And so Paul is not being very specific in Ephesians 4 verse 9. When he speaks of the depths or the lower parts of the earth, he may mean the incarnation. He may simply mean that Jesus, as he says in Philippians chapter 2, did not re re, uh, regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but, but humbled himself. That he came in the form of a man born of a woman. And as with Psalm 139, he may be speaking of the lower parts of the earth as nothing more than Mary's womb. But I think what Paul is referring to here as he contrasts Christ's ascent 
as the victorious Lord, the Son of Man, victorious over death in the grave. He's speaking of his ascent to heaven. And so I think it is probably best to take Paul's reference to his descent as the entirety of his humiliation in the flesh. In other words, wherever it took him, to the womb of Mary, to the roads of Galilee and of Judea, to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and to Sheol, we don't know from this verse. But he descended in the sense that he came down. And he came down very, very low. To be born of a woman, to live among men, to die the death of a criminal, to be laid in a tomb, and perhaps also to descend into hell, to proclaim his victory, to proclaim the gospel. The imagery of ascending and descending is, of course, derived from the vision of Jacob's ladder. And Jesus himself appropriates that vision that Jacob had to himself. When he is speaking to his disciples, to Nicodemus, he says, truly, not to Nicodemus, but to um, Nathaniel, truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This idea of man being connected to heaven through Jesus Christ, that he is the gateway, as he says, I am the way, no man cometh to the Father but through me. And then Jacob's ladder is incorporated into that, in this idea of ascending and descending, the totality of Christ's incarnation from Golgotha, of, excuse me, from Bethlehem to Golgotha, to the tomb, and where beyond that, is all captivated by this word, descended. Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. So, from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9, if Jesus did descend into hell, or Hades, or Sheol, then that movement would be encompassed in what Paul is saying. What does this mean? He ascended, but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. As a proof text, therefore, Ephesians 4, verse 9, allows for the doctrine of Christ descending into hell, but it doesn't prove it. So Paul's lack of specificity, we actually remarkably and ironically turn to Peter for a little bit more complexity. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, if you'd like to turn there, I want to read it because it is an enigmatic passage, to say the least, beginning in verse 18, so that we know that the context is clearly Christ's death on the cross. So the context places us in Matthew 27, Jesus' death. Peter writes, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah through the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, 
were brought safely through the water. And this time I can envision Paul scratching his head and saying, Peter, what are you talking about? This is a tough one. The word proclamation in verse 19, proclamation, is a, a generic word that's used in the scripture to denote any type of proclamation, not necessarily what we would consider preaching the gospel, but basically the announcement of something, the proclaiming of a decree, of an event, of a notable victory. But what really troubles commentators, theologians, preachers, is this phrase that he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Who are they? Where is this prison? What was the purpose of the proclamation? And there are, of course, a number of views. And the traditional reform view is the one that we have probably read most if we've read commentaries on 1 Peter chapter 3. And it's the one that I think is least tenable to the actual text. The traditional view is that Jesus preached to the, to the men and the women who lived before the flood. They tie his proclamation with this reference to Noah. The spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And so the traditional view that has been around since the early 2nd century is that Jesus went to wherever these people who died in the flood were being held and he preached the salvation of the gospel to them, giving them a second chance. This view has been reinvigorated in modern times by liberal theologians who like the idea of a second chance after death but obviously it has problems. First of all, why the antediluvians? Why not all those who died before the incarnation? Or at least, why not all those who died before the, the covenant with Abraham? Or with the establishment of the nation of Israel? Or with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai? Where, where do you draw the line in time? before which people warrant a, a second chance, even though they have died, and after which they, they no longer get that second chance. In other words, this traditional view singles out one group of mankind and says that, that God graciously allowed Jesus to go and preach the gospel to them. Now keep in mind, the interpretation that he preached the gospel is itself an assumption. It is not what the text says. The text says he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Doesn't tell us what that proclamation is or was. The other problem with this traditional view is the passage in Hebrews that announces it sounds like in universal terms it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. In other words, we have no biblical basis to grant any man, much less a group of men, hope of a second chance after death. So many theologians, especially during the Reformation, rejected the traditional view, and I think rightly so. 
But in the spirit of the Reformation, they tended to allegorize this preaching or proclamation of Jesus. And so the second view, the traditional Reform view, is that Jesus in his spirit preached through Noah at the time before the flood. That in, that in other words, Noah preached in the spirit of Messiah, though Messiah had not yet come. The problem with this view is that Peter seems to link the actual proclamation of Jesus as occurring while he was dead in the flesh. Listen again to verse 19 or verse 18. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation. Now it is possible that Peter is, is, is making a, a huge leap chronologically. And it is interesting and difficult in verse 20 when he brings Noah into the picture. Setting our chronological clock back 3,000 years from the time of the crucifixion to the time of the flood. Now Peter is doing this, I believe, to indicate that Jesus is himself the fulfillment of that ark and that Christian baptism is the analogy and the, and the memorial, the, the symbol, the sacrament of that salvation that Noah experienced through the ark. But nonetheless, verse 18 sets our context as being the death of Jesus. Made, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so, while the Reformed view tries to deal with the, the passage in reference to Noah, it seems to jettison what, what Peter says in verse 18. And so some theologians have, have put together a, a different view that I think has merit, at least consideration. There was a tradition, and I believe we see it alluded to in the little book of Jude in our Bible, and of course, um, this man is also called a preacher of righteousness, Enoch. There is a tradition among the Jews that dates back a very long way that Enoch preached to the fallen angels, but that his proclamation was not one of salvation, but of condemnation. That it was not preaching the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, but rather the proclamation of their damnation because of their wickedness. Listen to Jude, verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And as I said, the Jewish tradition was that the one who went to proclaim that bondage and that judgment was Enoch. So modern scholars view Peter's comment as seeing not Enoch, which you actually read that in the apocryphal book of First Enoch, if you want to read that particular story of Enoch preaching. What Peter is saying is, no, 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 they, they got it wrong, it wasn't Enoch. It was Jesus. That Jesus, when he died, in his spirit, or, or we might say his soul, went and made proclamation. And perhaps he made proclamation to those spirits and it is very unusual in the New Testament for departed humans to be referred to as spirits, 
Normally they are referred to as souls. So perhaps he went and made proclamation to the angels, the angelic host, whose wickedness was manifest most powerfully on the earth in the years and the generations leading up to the flood. Frankly, we don't know. We don't know for sure. But I think a simple reading of 1 Peter, this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, does clearly indicate that Jesus died in the body, but was still alive in the spirit. And in that condition, he did something. So we're going to head back to Ephesians chapter 4. But by way of Matthew 12, because I think the answer to the question, what did Jesus do, is given to us by the Lord himself, but it's given to us in a, in a way, a parabolic way. It makes us think about what we're reading. Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. Jesus has been accused of casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. And this is that passage where Jesus says, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. But then in verse 29, he throws this in. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? What did he mean? And who is the strong man? And who is the one who binds? And what is the property that will be plundered? Well, I will submit to you that this is exactly what Jesus did through his death and the time that he was in the tomb. We know that Satan was bound by Jesus' death. Now, I know that there is a prevalent teaching among dispensationalists that Satan has not yet been bound, that he will be bound for a thousand years and then released based on some passages in Revelation. But I would submit, as, as most Reformed theologians believe, and as the tradition of the early church also teaches, that Satan was already bound on the basis of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, that through death, speaking of Jesus, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Rendering powerless is essentially the same as binding which is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 12, verse 29. How are you going to go into a strong man's house unless he is rendered powerless, right? Because if he is strong and you enter his house, you're on the plate, you enter his house, you're going to be beaten up. And so he must be bound and tied and rendered powerless. That's what Jesus did. I got this... Um, physical analogy, just talking over last week's sermon, but it's as if, and, and it's just so powerful to me, as a, the imagery did not come to my mind before, but it's like when Jesus, he was on the cross, but at the moment he gave up the ghost, it's as if he grabbed Satan, and he said, I got you. Jesus has bound the devil. He has rendered him powerless. He is no longer enabled to deceive the nations, which is why the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, 
through Messiah, which was once isolated to one small people in one small backwater country, has now spread throughout the earth and is still spreading because Satan is no longer allowed to deceive the nations. He is bound. But what of his house? Well, again, Ephesians chapter 2 gives us the answer. What is it that he had the power over? Death. The grave. Sheol. Hades. That is what the victor plundered during those three days. That is what he emptied. Satan's house, the grave. Jesus proclaimed his victory and if we do take the tradition of first Enoch and we understand it not referring to Enoch but rather to the coming Messiah and what he would do that indeed Jesus did go to those angels who had so horribly deceived man before the flood and proclaimed his victory in the flesh as the son of man his victory over death and he announced their ultimate and imminent and inevitable doom but he also led captivity captive. Which is what Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 4. He has rendered Satan powerless through his own death, and he has plundered Satan's house, the grave, Sheol. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9, turning back to that passage where we will end in looking at this phrase, he led captivity captive. That's a quote from Psalm 68, verse 18, where the psalmist writes, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captive thy captives. It's a, fra- it's a strange phrase. It's a Hebraism, leading captivity captive. It basically means freeing the captives and bringing them home. It referred, of course, to the deliverance of the Israelites when they were in captivity in Egypt, when they were in bondage and captivity of Babylon. But in in Psalm 68 and Ephesians 4 especially, it refers to the fulfillment of all that those events foreshadowed. And that is the victory of Christ over the grave led those who had been in bondage and in prison of the grave to freedom. They were now captives to their victor, Jesus Christ. Another tradition widely taught among the rabbinic schools was that of a divided sheol. Now the word sheol, I think you're all familiar with, is is what we would call the grave or the afterlife. It is where the departed souls of the dead go. But in Jewish tradition, and I think this is actually sanctified by a story that Jesus tells, Sheol was divided between those who were faithful and those who were wicked. Those who were faithful went to Abraham's bosom, sometimes called paradise. Which if you remember, one of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross was his comforting words to the thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. The other place where the wicked went was called Gehenna. To to those who went to Abraham's bosom, there was rest, there was release. To those who went to Gehenna, 
It was torment of fire. And perhaps your mind has already gone to the story that Jesus tells of Lazarus and the rich man. And I call it a story because though it is widely believed to be a parable, it is not introduced as a parable, nor does it have the characteristics of a parable. And if it is a parable, it's the only one in which Jesus actually mentions somebody's name. It reads more like Jesus actually talking about someone who suffered greatly in this life, Lazarus, and when he died, he went, the angels carried him to be with his father Abraham. But across a gulf that was fixed that no man could cross, there was the rich man who was suffering the torments of fire and desired that Lazarus would come and dip his finger in water and just one drop on his tongue. And Abraham says, there, there's no passage between us. Sometimes it was called upper and lower Sheol. There were a number of different ways of referring to it. But if indeed what Jesus taught regarding Lazarus and the rich man was not a parable, but an actual true event, then I would submit to you that Jesus, dead in body but alive in spirit, went and led captivity in Abraham's bosom to freedom. That if there is such a place, and because we're talking about souls and not bodies, it's very hard to, to think about it, but all of the ancient cultures had this, this place where the souls of the departed would go. Some would go to Valhalla, where they would some feast and drink and fight and fight and feast and drink. Others would go across the river Styx. Others would go to this netherworld where people were only in semi-consciousness. You know, all of this idea that our soul, when our body dies, goes somewhere, fits with what Jesus teaches regarding Lazarus and the rich man. And if there is a place called Abraham's bosom or upper Sheol, then I would submit to you it's empty now. That the captives, the faithful of God, those who were redeemed by God's grace before the incarnation, before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, were held there in a state of bliss, of rest, but of wanting, as we all will until we receive our glorified bodies. But when Jesus died, there was no more reason for them to wait that they could now be in the presence of their Lord. As Paul says, all who die in the Lord will be immediately in the Lord's presence. Let us pray. Father, we exalt in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the power that he displayed in binding the strong man and plundering his house emptying the grave of those departed souls of the faithful, those who had the faith of Abraham even before Abraham and certainly after Abraham, but before Jesus. And we rejoice in the knowledge that when we leave our body, when we are, as Jesus was, dead in the flesh, but alive in the spirit, that we will not go to some purgatory, that we will not go to a place of purging and torment, nor even to paradise, a place of rest, but we will be in your presence, the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ.
For we know, as Paul says, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so, Father, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ gives the exclamation point to your saying that precious in your sight is the death of one of your beloved. We thank you for that grace and the mercy that you have shown us and the blessedness of being in Christ and knowing that he has made the way. Father, we ask that you would bless this passage, bless your word to our understanding and our souls to your keeping, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and receive the benediction this morning from Ephesians chapter 6. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be all to, with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Amen.